Greetings from the Commonwealth of Kwanzaa Society's talk show. This show has been created to bring to light the need for a centralized culture in the African-American community and to show how many of the struggles in the black community are rooted in the lack of a centralized culture, uh, African-based culture, in the black race as it exists in Western civilization and the Western Hemisphere. My name is Clarence Jones, your host today, and I will use this show to make my case for using the fall holiday of Kwanzaa as a cultural platform for the many different kinds of black people to gather around. Kwanzaa would be taken and turned into a year-round system instead of a once-a-year holiday. I think a positive effect on the black community, which I firmly believe would have a profound positive effect on the United States of America, both socially, but more importantly, economically. You, people don't realize, and I, and I can tell you this, the word nigga is an economic word. It is not a word, it is used in, in, in hate and disrespect, but it is an economic term. Prior to the enfranchisement, the franchisation of slavery, meaning in the 1600s, once slavery was realized that if you put slaves here, you can create economics, money, and wealth. If you do the same thing over there, you create that same economics and wealth. That's how something becomes franchised, like McDonald's. If I make a certain amount of hamburgers and make them this way, and I can do it here in Alabama, I can make a certain amount of money. If I do that same system in Georgia, I can make a lot of money, you know, it's, it's obviously a, a bit more complicated than that, but, you know, there's, there's um, brand building and marketing, but the, 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 the focus in the system is the same in that there is a system. And once slavery was systemized and franchised, that's when the word nigger becomes relevant in American history, literally the word was not in the dictionary before the economics of slavery. When someone realized that we take this labor, it can create wealth for us. Now the emphasis on the word nigger and the inferiority, inferiority of black people becomes part of the American um, dynamic. And so uh, this is why economics is so prevalent uh, in all conflicts. And so I think Kwanzaa can be a major factor in changing that dynamic in the black community in America, which would actually definitely help America economically. Uh, so why have I changed, uh, why have I chosen Kwanzaa, which is a fair question. Kwanzaa is of Africa, but not specific to a particular tribe of Africa. So it is inclusive to all African peoples. Kwanzaa is a first fruit harvest celebration that does not infringe upon religion, nationality, geography, or ethnicity. The African peoples need an ancestry-based system that all black people can rally around. This would lead to uh, better camaraderie, more familiarity with each other, uh, which would lead to continuity, then more camaraderie, which would lead to an enhanced ability to organize, coordinate, and orchestrate. And, of course, the result of all the things I just mentioned together, executed in a specific way, is what is called unity. Unity is not just a word. It is a way of living. It's a way of executing. That's what you, unity is. And unity is a key ingredient that has been lacking in the black population and has been a problem and, and a root of at many of its problems and struggles of, of, and challenges have been rooted in that lack of unity. And so Kwanzaa can be a major asset. And it, 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 and not having that unity has hampered its ability to deal with adversities, struggles, and its enemies as one force, as far as the black community is concerned. I'm going to use this show, my show, to make a case for the need of a central culture in the black population and for the practicality of using Kwanzaa as that cultural platform. 
I'm going to cite history, my personal life as a pro athlete, current events and books I've read as illustrations of that need for a central culture in the black population. Now, for the last couple of uh, episodes, I've been talking about Dr. Uh, Professor Manning Marable. I don't know if we're going to get to him today because uh, I have – I want to get into – the benefits of Kwanzaa. Why, what can Kwanzaa do? You know, the specific benefits Kwanzaa can, can offer the black race. And I feel like that would translate into benefits for the United States of America. I truly believe that. Uh, so much is centered around economics. And so any group, any group that comes to this country that is marginalized economic, as far as this economic Productive productivity, collective productivity, that's hurting the country ultimately because that's just less wealth that could be created for the economy of the United States or generated. So when you have a black community that has a lot of talented people, has a lot of capable people, but has an inability to put those people together to create a collective economy, to have influence, to pursue their economic interests, uh, it's said that a dollar bill turns over like twice in the black community, but other communities like Italian communities, Jewish communities, other ethnic groups, the dollar turns over 10 to 20 times, meaning it goes to the hands of, of other of similar or same ethnic group people in those other ethnic groups as compared to the African-American uh, ethnic group, if you want to look at them as one monolithic ethnic group, the dollar <laughs> almost immediately leaves the community. And so basically in the Jewish community, that dollar goes to a Jewish grocery, grocery store, it probably goes to a Jewish doctor, probably goes to a Jewish teacher, probably goes to a Jewish cab driver, probably goes to a Jewish construction company, probably goes to a Jewish, and they have Jewish colleges. They have Jewish, you know, they have their... And, and I'm just using them as an example, but for us, it turns, it does not turn over as many times. That means that's less income, wealth generated specifically for the African American community. Therefore, now that also is less influence they have on government. It has less influence they have on other ethnic groups, other political parties. These people collectively uh, can't do that much damage to us because they don't have that collective power. Now, they buy a lot, but they don't even do that collectively. And they're pretty reactionary. And so that hampers its, its ability. Not having that collective power is extremely inefficient for the black community and inefficient for America, ultimately. And so this is why I see Kwanzaa as being that platform that can, you know, can, can help in that area. And so since I'm baking so much on culture and Kwanzaa and the lack of a centralized culture in the black community as being a problem, the question must be asked, as always, what is culture? Why is it important? Culture is the playbook for a race or ethnic group or nation, a company, sports team. Community, nation, city. Culture is a playbook for all those people. Culture is coming together of shared values, beliefs, customs, education, entrepreneurship. And acquiring, uh, in, in acquiring it, it teaches you how to acquire symbols of status, actually. Culture must be learned. It cannot be, you're not born with culture. But that's why it's a critical factor since, you know, you may be born, you may all look the same. But uh, that doesn't mean you know how to treat one another. That doesn't know, let, let you know you know how to act with one another. You all look the same, but it doesn't mean you're on the same team because you don't have the same playbook. And culture does that. So when you're – actually, I'm, no, I, I'm, I'm talking bad about myself, but this is, this is a, a very good analogy. When I was a baby, one of my cousins – I was a newborn baby. I guess I was – he said he was basically said I was ugly, but he was saying, he said I was I looked like I was a, in a gang fight with everybody had a, a bat but me, and 
this is what my cousin said about my grown cousin. That's me. But when you don't have a centralized culture, is basically that's what it is. When you are not on the same page as the same people that look like you, and everyone else is. Everyone else has a playbook. Everyone else has a stick. Everyone else has a mu- ability to communicate with one another, and you have not. You are at risk. You're vulnerable. They can do whatever they want to you. I remember, I think I said this before. Yeah, I'm pretty sure, but it's a great story. Uh, I was in college going on my recruiting trip, and a couple of my guys, my friends, went to this fair in Long Island. And at that point, we were listen, used to Puerto Ricans. And uh, Puerto Ricans in Long Island were, to me, just like black people. They listened to the same music. They ate a little bit different food. They were just where we were. They were in our spaces as far as parties, um, clothes. They wore the same clothes we wore. They listened to our music. We listened to their music. Every now and then we listened to their music, Tito Puente. Um, we, you know, we, we just had a more integrated dynamic with Puerto Rican people. So around the 80s in Long Island, a lot of Central Americans, a lot of, you know, wars and stuff and famines were going on in Central America, you know, the, really Iran-Contra and all that stuff and, and trying to fight off communism. And the, the refugees from there, they started uh, coming to Long Island. So we had Central, so they were Hispanic people that were not like us. So we didn't speak to them. They didn't speak to us. Uh, we didn't bother them. They didn't bother us. Well, we made a mistake. My friend, one of my dumb, my dumbass friends was trying to show off. We're in high school. I think we're 18, 19, or 18, 17. I'm not there. If I was there, I would have beat my friend up. I would have jumped on my friend. So we, we're young guys with girls. And I guess my friend, the guy wanted to show off in front of the, his friend, in front of the girl. So he, we're at a county fair. Now, it's a lot of Central Americans at this county fair. So, but it didn't look like anybody. So you see a whole lot of Central Americans, but they're not necessarily with each other. So it appeared. So he's picking on his guy. Now, one thing about the, the immigrants, the aliens, I guess, you know, we didn't think about that back then, but there's a... a you know, a reality of legality of them. Some of them were illegal, possibly. Um, you know, that was an issue, not like today, but thinking back, there's no way that all of them were there legally. So when you have that situation, these people don't want trouble from anybody. They don't want trouble from the police. They don't want trouble from outsiders, other Americans that are, you know, Native Americans, which at that point I am. I'm a black man. I'm born here. White guys, even other Puerto Ricans, they don't want any trouble. They really want to handle their own business. So I guess the dude, my guy, the guy who's from my town, was picking on him, like pushing him and, and you know, trying to show off. And so he kept picking at the dude. <laughs> and the dude stops and yells something in Spanish. And all my – so it's like five of my guys, my best friend. I think it was five, six, and some girls. Whatever it is, once he yelled something in Spanish, all the people surrounded them. And (laughs) this is what culture does. These people were all on the same team, on the same page. My my so-called friend did not know they were all together. And they all, see, here's the thing. Whether they live together or not, they're all together because they came from someplace else, uh, which they are all from, they're in a foreign territory, and they have to work with each other. So when my guys, my, my friend, was bothering them, and they realized he was in danger, he called for backup, and everyone surrounded our guys. Now, fortunate for them, these were fair-minded people, and they said, let the dude fight um, my guy one-on-one. And the guy agreed. I guess he was afraid that he was going to get jumped. By the, um, and see, you, you know what? You're not thinking we're kids, but, you know, illegal aliens and, you know, there's a lot of resentment. And so there was a lot of violence against immigrants and stuff like that. And maybe that's what was on his mind. But whatever it was, he didn't mind fighting my guy one on one. 
who was bigger than him, by the way, my, guess what my guy did? He backed out, wouldn't fight him. So the dude slapped him in the head, and they let, but they let us go. So we lucked out. These were good guys, and we weren't looking for trouble. The one guy was bothering them. So that's, that's what culture does. It gives you a playbook. It puts you on the same team. And in that instance, <laughs> we were on the wrong side of that. And so, and we, and I think I've talked about this with um, with Dr. Thomas Sewell's book, uh, "Race and Culture and Conquest of Culture," in which a lot of ethnic groups come here with a playbook, and they come here with a playbook that's geared for them. So Koreans, people are mad about Koreans, and they seem to be able to get loans, and they seem to be able to move up quicker. Understandable. First of all, those Koreans are very disciplined. I think all Korean males are required to join the military. So when you have these Koreans, I don't care if he's a fat old man looking a Korean man, that guy has been part of some type of regimented life almost his whole life. So when they want to apply that to business or anything, that clearly is an asset for them. They have their own financing. And, and what Thomas Sewell says in his book, Many ethnic groups, and I'm definitely going to explore this more, they experience a lot of ethnic, well, how did we get here as Africans other than tribal warfare and, and, and disunity and violent fractionalism and, and tribal uh, and fractional and tribal wars and tribal aggressions that go back generations? A lot of these immigrants face that in their home countries as well, to, to the point where it's literally more dangerous for them to be in their own country than to be in America. It's literally more restrictions on them economically, politically, and socially in their own country than here in America. So now what you have with these immigrants, some of them, and I'm thinking Koreans, I'm thinking um, of definitely Irish, well, definitely Koreans and Indians, you have a condensed people that a lot of them tend to come from specific areas of their home country to specific areas of America, which gives them a lot of continuity. Yeah, these people are new. These people are different. In a lot of instances, they don't even know the language, but they know each other, and they know how to work with each other better. This, this is an absolute advantage for them. It's an absolute advantage. And then they also have wealth systems. They have finance systems because they know each other. They have that trust. So breaking the law or certainly reneging on, on loans has social implications with, within this network of ethnic groups that make paying back any loan um, very probable. You know, they're going to pay it back because they, they don't want the disgrace of, of turning their back and messing over a, another country, a fellow countryman and then going around other countrymen, you know, with that, that loss of faith. So that's one thing that works in their favor. I'm just explaining why it seems like ethnic groups are, are advancing quicker than African-Americans, and there's a reason why. There's a, you know, one of the things, they're not black, and I understand that. They're not chasing Koreans down the street, at least not, not at this point. Sometimes they are. Um, discriminating against them, but one thing they do possess are systems that aid them. And those systems that aid them and give them an advantage are culturally based. And so this is what culture, why it is important. Culture is a, um, a economic strategic planning for a race or ethnic group, acquisition of businesses, startups. It helps that process to buy real estate, educating to obtain and again, now we talk about value systems, educating to obtain high-paying jobs, and starting with, uh, with young people getting good grades. So now, one, ad, one advantage of an ethnic group, any ethnic group that values education, which, of course, you're talking about Jewish people, you're talking about Asian people, you're talking about Indian people. And we also talk about how in the same neighborhoods of Irish, Jewish, and Italians, the same neighborhood, same schools now, produce 
policemen and fire chiefs and firemen who were Irish, that same uh, neighborhood produced um, factory workers and laborers who were Italian, the same poor neighborhood, same school system, produced doctors, lawyers, and dentists. That's cultural. And so now, when your cultural value system steers your people towards getting good grades, which Jewish people value, which Asian people value, which Indian people value, which Jamaican people, people don't know this, people value, which Nigerian people value, that's moving their kids towards high-paying jobs, that's moving their children towards human capital, that's moving them towards human capital that gives them high-paying, wealth-creating jobs that help them start businesses easier. So that's what culture can do. Culture is a transporting of the history of a race, its identity, who they are, and how valuable they are. We are the chosen people. Uh, in, in a negative way, in India, they have the untouchable, usually your darker-skinned people. But there's a classification, um, you know, looking down on these people, that means they look up on the light skin. Whatever it is, they have some value system that their culture has given them that set, tells them they're valuable and important. So that's uh, one thing that's good about culture can do for a race. Culture is the economic, political, social, spiritual, geographical rallying point for ethnic groups. Um, that uh, a disconnection from all of these elements, if, if any ethnic group is disconnected from its ability culturally, to be connected economically, politically, uh, physically, spiritually, ge- geographically, if they have no rallying point, they're virtually defenseless in society. You know that. I guess it's just like my guys at the county fair in Long Island. The other ethnic group, the Central Americans, were able to get, once they saw one of and it was just one of my, what if all of them were threatening, they would have, it would have been bad for them. Once they were, once one was perceived as a threat through their communication and the fact that they're on the same team, easily dispensed with my so-called friend and his threat to that one Central American. And so that central culture and not having it doesn't give you the ability to be unified, doesn't give you the ability to protect yourself. It makes you defenseless. Culture, defenseless. Culture is a template for a race. Uh, it's uh, and it cannot. It literally cannot exist as a cooperative entity. Culture is the collective, uh, collective spirit of a race. The culture teaches the race to love, educate, mentor each other, to punish, to give, to correct, to reward. Culture does all of that. Uh, creates family rules. Creates family values. It takes advantage of opportunities. Culture gives you an opportunity. Uh, to collectively take advantage of any opportunity. So as, as the Koreans looked into the black community and they see liquor stores and gun shops and what have you, they say, no, no one's really um, doing mom and pop grocery stores. They are, but they're not good. And if we come in with our connections, see what the Koreans or outside people do, they come in with their own connections. Same thing with Asians, with the, uh, with the, with the hair, with the hair extensions. So the Asians have a market on all the hair extensions in the African-American community. Apparently, any hair extensions you buy, they are Asian, they are Korean. And black people are not allowed for whatever, well, the, the Koreans have basically a union or a guild that refuses to sell or buy to anyone but other Koreans. So the blacks have no other, no one to go to than other than Koreans in the black community when it comes to buying hair. And so this is what a culture can do. It gives you the ability to take advantage of opportunities. The, now, there are Asians. If it's Asian hair, Indians have hair like Asians. Why don't the blacks create a dynamic with the Indian? They're already Indians in America. 
and, and, and Koreans are not the only Asians with Asian hair. So why is there not a effort by the black community to create that, that chain, that economic chain of hair? So the, the culture, the lack of a centralized culture hampers their ability to do that. Uh, to be in tune with each other, a culture does that. It helps with, in project managing. It, it is a strategic plan, as I said before. Culture is the only way to be one. It's the only way to be one group is culture. Culture is, a, again, it's a rendezvous place for ethnic groups. It is not collectively, uh, you can't do anything without it, collectively economic. And there are things that only culture can do. There are other things that do that. Religion can do some, some things like that. But really, the, the only thing that culture can do is it can give you a serviceable dynamic between genders. Only culture can organize you around economics. Only culture can properly dispute uh, life, uh, distribute life-saving and societal developing knowledge. Culture does that. You know, this is how we cook. This is how we cooked in Africa. This is how we cooked chicken in America once we were part of the slave system and we used flour and we have fried chicken. Uh, this is how we cook, cook black eyed peas. Pretty sure black eyed peas comes from, from, uh, from Africa. You know, now it's black eyed peas and rice with chicken, black eyed peas and rice with pork. So all of that's part of the diaspora and then becoming part, being African and becoming part of the American diaspora and then the african-american diaspora but africa's in there at, you know at some point because a lot of these foods originated in africa and so a lot of these societal creating and saving customs are passed down through culture culture can create symmetry between classes as we said culture can create symmetry between genders as we said before only culture can really do that so culture can, only culture can love a specific people. God loves all children. Government protects all of its people, yet and still there's inequality. So, okay, and I wrote this down about what culture, only culture can do. Only culture can teach you to love yourself. Only culture can love a specific people in a specific way. God loves all his children. The government protects all its people, theoretically, but still there's inequality in society. Still there's consistent bias against certain ethnic groups. There's consistent inequality. There's consistent um, law enforcement, the law. There, there's, there, there are large numbers of one group of people going to the prison. You know, even though the government clearly wants to protect all its people, it clearly is not. But culture can. Only culture can teach how to love each other. Culture can teach why education is important for you. Uh, culture can teach you why power is important for you. Only culture can help you teach um, to honor and value old people. So culture is so such a profound, has such a profound impact on society and an ethnic group, and to be honest with you, culture has a, a profound impact on ethnic groups, but it has a profound impact on society because those ethnic groups operate within a society with other ethnic groups. And so the, product, the productivity of that ethnic group ultimately will be a benefit to the society in which it resides, the nation, the country, the city, the community, the neighborhood, all these things are impacted by a strong culture and a strong centralized culture can help everyone. So as we talk about in, uh, culture, why it's important, let's look at, you know, and again, I always like, I'm sorry, I have, you know, I, I have a tendency to, to focus on Jewish people because they, they, they're, so, <laughs> they're, they're so right in your face and you, you've grown up around it and you, you never knew that, you know, you knew that they were here, there were Jewish people here, the people that worshipped there that way, but you didn't know that 
so much of their success is rooted in their culture. I did not understand that. So it's, they're, they're pretty fascinating to me. So I always kind of refer, I tend to refer to them. So, but anyway, let's go again, looking at how culture has helped a, a, a specific people. And you don't have to look any further than our Jewish community and their history. And the, now the thing that is, and, it, it, and I'll be honest, the reason Jews have experienced a lot of struggle and hardships for thousands of years, Jews are on the top end of resentment from other people. Black people have been on the bottom end, meaning it's Jews, because of their culture, they've had an, an, an unusual amount of economic and, and social success because of the strength of their culture. The decentralization of black culture has made them vulnerable for the same reason, and they are resented because people fear them. Uh, well, it, I guess it does in a sick way make sense. Since they're the poor and you have things, who are going to be the first people that try to take your things, which, of course, will be people who don't have things, the poor. They're the people who are going to first people to resort to criminology. You know, it's going to be your poor, not black people, poor people of any kind. And so, but for both, for, for they're both, the Jewish community and the black community are on opposite ends of the same spectric, uh, spectrum of distrust and hatred by indigenous people in power. And so a lot of resentment has existed for Jews because of their successes economically, politically, socially. And so we'll go into this now. Uh, this ethnic group has been consistently persecuted and resented for thousands of years. Going back to the Middle Ages, they were used to collect uh, for the rep. They were the collectives. They were the collectors. Uh, they used, They were used as tax collectors for the feudal lords and the in the king of Poland and uh, kings of Eastern Europe. They were the economic overseers in Eastern Europe, the Ukraine. Uh, for the feudal lords for Poland. As a result, a lot of anti-Semitism, which was simply resentment for their position and, their, and more importantly, their economic status and prowess. The Jews were very uh, unified, and they were very tribal. They did not assimilate. So what the Jewish population was good at Using the resources of whatever region they lived in to promote <coughs> and keep themselves going, which how can you be mad at that? <laughs> they they used this to schools to educate their system, their, their children. They used the uh, they and they were not always doctors and lawyers. And so, and the good thing that uh, Dr. Thomas Sewell pointed out. There was a time when they were the poor people, too. So they just kept, they always valued education. And so that put them in position as middlemen and what have you to be, to have great economic economic opportunities because of their education and because of the importance of education to them as a culture, as part of their culture. And that definitely helped them. So in Medieval Europe, resentment and anti-Semitism definitely developed specifically aimed at them because of their position and status. Pogroms, which were basically lynchings and ethnic cleansing, where you, you know, there were, there were Jews that lived out here, there were Jews that lived out there on a farm or wherever. The, the people would get together, get angry. And there would just be these rallies and search parties that would go find them and kill them. They would burn their homes. Uh, they would hang them, I'm pretty sure. And these were the pogroms that were, were in Europe because of the resentment, because of too much of the, because they had too much success in the minds of the other people. And they did not assimilate. So this is, this is one of the things that uh, they had to go through. The Jews were, um, they were, 
the Jews were distracted, uh, distrusted in medieval Europe. They had laws enacted against them. They were not, they were forbidden to own land. They could not marry, so it was not legal to marry a Jew, and they could not vote. And uh, as Thomas Sewell, and I'll, I'll point this out in Thomas Sewell's book, there have been large numbers of ethnic groups and racial groups on this planet that have been discriminated against in hostile territory and still have been able, because of their unity, are able to literally overcome that. And that's where the ethnic violence starts. That happened in, in uh, Uganda with the Indians um, and other places where the ethnic groups were doing, in the minds of the people, too well. And so they, you know, and I guess it, it, it didn't result into ethnic violence like Germany, but they were expelled. The Indians were expelled from Africa. And uh, they were doing well, and they were, and even when laws were enacted against them, they tended to still do well. Uh, these, in, he's referring to Chinese uh, and Malaysians in, in Malaysia. So I can't wait to get into specifically, to specifically get into Thomas Sewell's books, because his stuff on race is very, uh, very informative, makes you think. And for me, it really validates the need of a central culture in the black population. But anyway, the disenfranchisement meant the, the Jewish disenfranchisement meant that there was not uh, ability for them to make an income, a fair income. They couldn't run for office. They couldn't do it through accumulation of land. They were literally not allowed to own land, and they couldn't enact laws to change that because they were not allowed to vote. So uh, this meant that they were they were not agrarian. They were not tradesmen. They had to become middlemen. They became tradesmen uh, garment in the garment industry, the middlemen, the brokers, the land brokers, the lending institutions, because it didn't require a lot of labor. This made them... Um, this made them want to do this. And, and many Eastern Europeans, uh, because the banks, uh, the, it, well, this made them very valuable to the king because he was, uh, he needed the banking industry to uh, create his economy to fight his wars and to pay his lower lord. This was another reason why they were programmed. So there was a natural dynamic that existed. Again, get it leading to the anti-Semitism. There's a natural dynamic that existed between the king and his Jewish vassals because he was helping directly helping the king's economy and his economics. They also only paid taxes to the king. So if they lived in Ukraine or Russia, and they were under the king of Poland, who at some point controlled all that territory. People don't realize that. And there were Jewish vassals. They did not pay taxes to Ukraine or Russia. According to these books, they still paid it to the king. So there was a special relationship with the king uh, at the expense of the other people in the other regions of his kingdom. And so that adds to more distrust, which we you know, we'll later see when the king has to expel them. At some point, it, you know, the other people in his other parts of the kingdom have the numbers. So they are angry with the Jews, and he wants to keep them under his rule, He, uh, which he, he the, the king, this was definitely done in Spain, where the king expelled the Jews, and then once the Jews left, they had economic problems, and then the Jews had to be brought back. And so, but that's this this dynamic where they are they have their economic privilege and their relationship with the king uh, creates dissent between them and the common people and the regional people and the you know the people in the out in the on the land in, you know in the landed areas uh, in the in the surf in the surf areas in the serfdom actually I think they're called. So that natural dynamic existed, and that uh, also was a two-edged sword. So it was important 
do this. The knights and the lords and other vassals resented them, and it was an alienation uh, for, for the Jewish population, and, uh, and, and they were jealous of their economic prowess. Uh, because the strong cultural dynamic that of the Jewish people, they refused to take on other people's culture, which ended up having people distrust them. The European population, particularly the church, because the Jewish people were taking revenues from the church. So now the church in these areas that the Jewish people lived in and resided in didn't like them either because they were taking money from them. They were making a lot of money and not giving it to them. The Jewish routinely were expelled from, city, from cities and then brought back. Uh, this now caused the Jews to uh, scatter. Now, this is, again, another thing about Jews is this. When you listen to Nazi Germany, they talk about the Jewish conspiracy and how Jewish is, or Jews are everywhere working together behind the scenes uh, to work against the national, natural and national interests of the countries in which they reside. But see here, this is where this diaspora, this global diaspora exists or comes about in the Jewish community because they were resented and they were routinely expelled from other areas. This caused them to scatter globally. Now, they have a strong culture. This ethnic group has been dispelled, um, expelled and dispersed. They have to go all over. They couldn't just go up the street. They had to leave totally. Their lives, their very lives were at stake. So they went, they, you know, they scattered globally. Now they have a strong culture. They have a strong central culture. They're tradesmen. They're middlemen. They're bankers. So who are they going to do business with once they get to their prospective countries who were still discriminated against, who discriminated against them as well? So wherever Jews went, they ran into anti-Semitism. So, of course, what's going to make them uh, uh, their best? course of action for his business is doing business with other Jews economically and globally. And so that's the Jewish, you know, the Jewish, so-called Jewish um, conspiracy and the Jewish network of them, that that basically comes from people discriminating against them. So this is part of, of uh, what we, what has happened to the Jewish population. And so uh, post-World War II, And, um, and so this is this is one critical component of the ability of the Jewish populations to prosper economically on a global scale. And so here we have clearly an issue, an instance where ethnicity and a strong centralized culture has helped this ethnic group of Jews. So again, so as I've written it down. Centralized culture is a key ingredient that has been missing in the black race for generations. We see how it's helped the Jewish population. It is an important component to the survival and prosperity of any race. And so there are examples, our race, in which not having a strong central culture has hurt them. And so I think this is now where we look at us as the black community and how there's a need for a central culture in the black population. And so we want to take a look at black civilization and how that has played and been a, a problem or an impediment for the black race. The great author, Chancellor Williams, wrote in his book, The Destruction of Black Civilization, that the West African population of, of, of uh, blacks who occupied that area were, in fact, refugees from East Africa, where they built their own singular society and civilization with an unknown centralized language. So all those black people spoke one single language. They still don't know what it is to this day. Here's what, now, here's where that plays in to not having a central culture and how that's been an impediment for the black race in, in the black community. One thing that allowed the slave trade to prosper, and I just learned this the other day, I don't know where I learned it, is the fact that all the 
blacks broke into tribes, and they all had separate languages in their own religion, making them separate ethnic groups, literally. So one country had a hundred different tribes. One African country had a hundred races in it, with a hundred different languages. So not having that centralized culture and centralized language is even worse. So now you can't communicate with one another. You're literally different peoples. And I think I talked about this in other episodes, and I, I was able to talk to a black man from Liberia, a native Liberian. And if you don't know Liberia's history, basically African Americans tried to go to Liberia and be white men and occupy all the <laughs> top positions and basically colonize uh, Liberia. Basically, you're native Africans, you your Guineas, African Guineas, and so we're African Americans, and we we're going to we're going to take over and control this country. And so they were overthrown uh, by the natives and said, "No, nah, you know, we you're not having it from the white folks. You're not having it from you, black people acting like white folks. We're not doing it. We're not having it." But anyway, I asked him a question, as I talked about before. I said, um, "Let's say his name is um, Ahmad. Ahmad I said, Ahmad, tell me this: You're a tribe in Africa, and you live in a in a tribe here and five miles away is another tribe they said yes i said that tribe has its own language doesn't he said yes it has it has its own religion and he said yes i said well tell me this yeah you're all black do you look at them as another race he said absolutely and that was like wow and of course that's one of the major impediments that lack of a centralized culture is real and the consequences of those things, of not having a central culture, a centralized culture, is real. And it, it became real to me when he just said to me, a Native African said it to, to my face like that. It just made it all that more real. And here's something I just learned. This is the cool thing about history. You're constantly, you, you, you know the basics, but you're constantly learning new nuances uh, that, like, really give more perspective on your point of view. I was not aware that not only did the white man get African people to start wars with one another uh, to get slaves for them, the white man physically could not go but like 10 miles into Africa. So if you think about what took out South America and Central America, those empires it was the Spanish conquistadors. Yes, they had better technology. Yes, they had swords. But what took out the Mayan and the Aztec was not the sword of the, uh, not just the sword of the conquistador. It was his diseases. His diseases, and it said that the diseases spread so far, they were already dying as the conquistadors moved into Central America. The, the Aztecs or Mayans were already dying. So the, the, the poison, the virus, and the diseases that they brought had already spread. And that was, you know, we, we knew that for a while. Apparently, in Africa, it was the opposite. If he went in, malaria would take him out. So, you know, the malaria, the white men would not survive too long in Africa the deeper he went. No white And so that just makes it more profound how much he needed black collaboration in the African slave trade. And so when we talk about Chancellor Williams' book and the breakdown of ethnic groups, and so we, uh, I've read this before, and we talked about this before. The, the, the blacks leaving Asia Minor, the, uh, the blacks leaving East Africa and going to West Africa and becoming different races and ethnic groups and breaking down into tribes, there were consequences, dire consequences, to them doing this. And so this is one of the things. These are one of them, having, not having unity and looking at each other as a different people when everyone just looks at them as potential slave cargo. So they had an, a singular language because of natural disaster and migration of Arab populations from Asia Minor, they began migrating across the continent to the western portion 
of Africa. As this happened, they began splintering up and going into different parts of Africa and forming their own tribes with their own tribal languages and culture. With one country, as we talked about before, one country having up to 100 tribes. Having no central state, European incursion was unchecked. And instead of uniting to deal with the common thread posed to the region, uh, uh, or on the contrary, the slave trade caused infractional <laughs> wars to ensue uh, to to get uh, uh, to get slaves to sell to the Europeans. Now, this is interesting. We talked about, or have we talked about this in the past? Uh, European incursions and not having that common threat. Well, we know this. While the slave trade was going on, so that the infracticidal wars were encouraged, but it was caused by a lack of central culture. They saw each other as different people. And so there was no, there was no common response to European incursion. The fragmentation in the black race has created a factual reality that the black man has not needed to build and maintain his own societies for thousands of years. And so because they didn't have magisteries, they went away from having their own magistrates. They, they, magistrates. they went away from having uh, strategic planning. How are we going to educate our kids for the future? How are we going to make money for us? How are we going to, you know, what's this, this source of income? Maybe it's a plant. Is it a, a, a plant that's going to be here in 10 years or 20 years? How is it growing? All those things are, are uh, administrative things that an African race, any race, has to do. And the black race has not had to do these things in 5,000 years. And so um, symptomatic of these realities is a, 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 a symbolic of these non-nation building realities, a consequence is the black males don't value knowledge, does not value information, pursues mating rights instead of, of attempting to dominate the ecosystem in which he resides, making it fit your needs. Any group, if, if we land on a planet or an island or anything, whoever deals makes the decisions, which traditionally was the males, as far as administration, whoever does deals with the security, which is traditionally the males, we have women uh, MMA fighters, so that could certainly now be females, but traditionally that was the males. So if we landed on a planet or a island or any new area, region of space, we have to evaluate this space and we have to evaluate its ability to feed us, clothe us. We have to evaluate our ability to protect ourselves from any other people who want to take it from us. What kind of natural disaster exists in this region? What kind of predators exist in this region? We have to defend ourselves against that. That's an administrative thing that males have to, in the rearing. Now, this administration is connected to the rearing of all its males from birth. So if you're not doing that, if you don't have to do that, you are now skewed your mentoring and development process for your male. I don't care what race you are. The black male values physical prowess instead of societal dominance. He, he questions all black authority and goes along with any outside authority over him all as if it is natural. So these are all the consequences of not having to raise your own society. And so and, and the consequences of not needing to build and maintain the civilizations and societies has been and has made the black man remedial in the areas of military science, power creation and acquisition, and not very 
in, in not understanding power or even how it works uh, too strongly, making him vulnerable to predatory ethnic groups and a marginal ally at best. The so-called black community is quick to antagonize, alienate, and disrespect one another with an emphasis not on being disrespectful. So with black folks, we're very, we're not worried about giving you respect. And I, I've noticed that as a pro football player. It, 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 people literally walk up on you, just staring at you, waiting for you to speak to them. So they don't want to acknowledge, hey, professional football player, I heard you. They don't, they don't, they don't do that. But they literally will walk up on you, waiting for you. And they may stalk you. You know, if you don't give them, they'll walk on. But now, now, now they, they, they have an attitude around. So they're not trying to really acknowledge me, but in their mind, I better respect and acknowledge them. This is, this is the lack of continuity. This ecosystem of hostile discontinuity manifests itself in what I call the black zombie nation. And that's a, a group that has an inability to work together, an inability to understand what it takes to control and dominate this ecosystem, and with very little interest of learning how to do that. Uh, the, the, the black businesses fail and are not supported like other ethnic groups. And, of course, you also can see when you go into black businesses, the, you know, the, a lot of times they're not that. They're getting better, but they used to, you know, they'll be, un, basically they take that street mentality into a place of business. And street mentality is about respect. You better respect me. When you bring that into a place of business, I'm bringing my money which is green, and I'm trying to give you an exchange for my business. Yes, you should respect me. Well, in black businesses, there are not all, obviously not all of them like this, but you see a pattern in that where they're not really trying to respect you like that. Don't say anything to you. Even when you say something nice to them, they don't say anything back to you, like we're keeping it real type of thing. Uh, you go to a McDonald's in an urban black neighborhood, then go to a McDonald's, then go to a Chick-fil-A, and, uh, and, and I, one thing I've noticed about Chick-fil-A, they only go into specific economic areas, white or black. And so the kids are very positive and professional. You go into one of those uh, McDonald's and the, you may get into a fight, you know. You, you, I mean, that's how high, it, antagonistic they are to you. Or if the girl, <laughs> this is my problem, personal problem, if the girl don't find you attractive, treat you disrespectfully. And uh, so... These are the, the issues that go into Black Zombie Nation and, um, and, and, and moves us not towards civilization building, which a centralized culture does do, can do. And so one question that, that needs to be asked, how can Kwanzaa help? Kwanzaa can be a meeting place for different types of Black people. Uh, an environment that can create continuity between the wealthy, middle class, and poor of a race. Any culture can do that. This, um, this is critical for an ethnic group's ability uh, to master its ecosystems that it resides in. The black lawyer, doctor, cab driver, factory worker, dentist, uh, construction worker, teacher, Kwanzaa can give them a commonality, a, a common platform. There's been cultural disconnect between classes and groups in the black population in America since, since during slavery. And so uh, Kwanzaa can be a platform for that. Uh, one seconds. of the historic things uh, is the uh, brown paper bag issue in New Louisiana, which is post-Civil War, but if you weren't dark, lighter, if you were darker than a brown paper bag, you couldn't get into the social society. And so these are the types of little disconnections, fictions, and factions that have um, disconnected the black race as a whole. So wanted to talk a little bit about what Kwanzaa can do for the black race. I hope I've made my case this week. I, this is Clarence Jones, your host of the Greetings from the Kwanzaa Society's talk show. I hope you guys have a great week. Thanks for your time. I always enjoy talking with you. Take care.